1: access for a podcast where we examine the uncanny x-men comic book franchise as it begins its
0: multi-title 80s expansion i'm your host jonah i'm dylan i'm kyle i'm regina and I'm Nico, and we hope you survive this experience. Similar to the way this one fucking story won't die, and I just want to dial back a second. We're talking about a really interesting part of the Secret Wars, a part that clearly didn't stay secret for very long. Secret Wars number 4 has been told so many goddamn times. It's been told in the form of Thor 383 and Spider-Man and the Secret Wars number 1. Now, this issue came out August 10th, 1984. The Thor issue that literally like delves deep into the plot of this issue didn't come out until September of 1987. Meanwhile, the Spider-Man story that dials directly back into this moment in time came out in December of 2009, and I'm just left asking myself, was Secret Wars 4 so significant that it needed to be told three ways? And I'm thrilled for that. When we last left our heroes, things were looking a little bleak, and the villains looked like they were doing okay, and the X-Men were kind of doing their own thing, and I think we've all agreed that no one's acting super duper heroic, but it's just sort of like a weird situation Going into this moment, this very famous cover of The Hulk holding up 150 billion tons. What are you guys feeling?
2: I feel like a mountain is on top of us.
0: (laughs) 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 But actually, you know... All seriousness, I kind of get it. Like, so much shit is just being thrown at this plot, and I don't know that a lot of it is connecting for me. It really does feel like I'm buried under a mountain full of rubble.
2: It's definitely a lot of different things, and the mountain was something that I was not expecting.
0: Yeah, I think that this was
1: pretty interesting in the fact that we're seeing the villains try to be villains and be like, No, we're actually going to kill them. And I don't quite understand certain power levels because i feel like if the molecule man really wanted to do something like really dangerous to show off to Volcana, i feel like he could have just ripped their atoms apart one by one i i feel like this was like trying to big dick and be like "Ah, look at this mountain but like they're the heroes and they have multiple strong guys on their team i feel like there should have been better planning here
0: you know jonathan hickman does very much agree with you about molecule man being absurdly powerful when marvel comes back to this idea not necessarily this story in the form of 2015's secret wars molecule man plays an equally large oh my goodness look how powerful he is sort of purpose
3: but i kind of like that that He's not really planning that well. He's just kind of basking in. Look what I can do! <laughs> you <I> know.
0: <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> He's kind of like that kid in, you know, eighth grade that does something super cool that one time, and he just wants to kind of bask in it. And I'm kind of feeling that way about Enchantress, too. I'm like, am I in middle school? What's happening here?
0: <laughs> there is definitely some you can't sit with us going on, it's very Asgardian plastics. That's a really great way to put
4: it. <laughs> yeah, it really is.
0: And we all know Enchantress would be the Regina George. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't just ask people why they're mid guardian. <laughs>
4: <laughs> for me, my thoughts is, yeah, it's kind of just cheesy that he just throws a mountain on them. Um, I mean, I guess for the 80s, they kind of just wanted to show that this kind of crappy villain could actually do something... Slightly cool But also kind of showcase the fact that Hulk can kind of Take the brunt of the story On his back I guess
0: You know, and that came up in the green room between Kyle and I. I had said to Kyle that while I keep joking that it's Secret Wars 4 three ways, it's actually kind of Secret Wars 4 and then both halves of the story are retold at different points because I think this cover is probably more famous than the actual interiors. The heroes all piled, like jumping out of the middle of the page for that first cover or doom triumphant from the end. I feel like the covers of Secret Wars are significantly more memorable than the actual plot because is a good portion of the story of this issue is i think that we're never supposed to trust women and i feel like that's a real shit story to tell
3: i mean basically because oh, even <laughs> even when we have this scene between magneto and wasp she kind of goes nah, 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 and then she just runs away <laughs> like what
0: the- Absolutely. It's it's so it's almost as if the women are inconsequential in this story. And when I say almost as if, I guess it kind of really directly is. In issue 4 and the retellings, the only truly consequential actions of women are in roles that involve mesmerizing or seducing men you know storm and rogue have dialogue but i don't think actually you know i don't know that rogue even has dialogue i think she's got a thought bubble but i know storm has dialogue she says there that's magneto's fortress ahead cyclops using her uncanny ability to use her (laughs) eyes and so i feel like because a huge aspect of this issue is this weird forced enchantress thor thing and i don't know i just don't like this issue somebody else save me from my own impotent (laughs) rage i don't know if i
1: can i am struggling to find the proper words to describe what exactly is going on in this issue whether it's this lesson that we're being taught that the women throughout this series the special series that they put together are not trustworthy or not given any dialogue whatsoever i feel like another really forgotten character throughout all of this is monica rambeau uh the current captain marvel during this time and i'm just like well, i I read a little bit of Monica, and I know she can be really cool and badass and stuff, but like here, ooh, she's basically a sexy lamppost. And that's not even a pun that she just brights everything up. This weird thing with Janet trying to keep tabs on Magneto was not needed, does not make sense, and she escaped way too easily, for my personal taste. Now, I will
3: say, in the original story, She-Hulk basically gets knocked out and contributes nothing. (laughs) And I'm just kind of looking at this like, wait a minute, she's freaking (laughs) She-Hulk.
0: She should never be underestimated. Absolutely. That's a terrific point. So,
3: but in one of the backup stories, she does play a larger role. So I did like that, but I don't think we really needed it because it's over and done with. Do we need to revisit that and try to make it right? I don't know.
0: (laughs) You know, and that's actually the conversation that I had with Kyle in the green room. I had said to him that I didn't think that any of these retellings of these two original stories were particularly necessary. But Kyle, you had raised some points about maybe not necessary, but... But at least entertaining.
2: Definitely. I think that when it came down to things, uh Spider-Man and the Secret Wars was a entertaining retelling of about it. It gave us a slightly different perspective of how things happened and it brought the writing into a slightly more modern style, so it wasn't as wooden as the uh, the original. So I, I found it a little more entertaining.
0: And, you know, it, if nothing else, it kind of expands on it. Now, Kyle, you and I are big Thor guys. We love Thor. Dylan, I know your relationship with Thor kind of hinges on Russell Douderman's Jane Foster Thor, which is a really fair thing. <laughs> you know, when people ask me should they read Thor, I'm always like, well... As long as you accept that, for some reason, Stan Lee was under the impression that all Norse gods spoke Middle English? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, it's very Shakespeare, and I don't know why, but... Okay, but here's the thing, really fast my, to that.
1: Nobody knows what the Norse gods talked like, and for that matter, you just make it up and fill in the detail.
0: Boom, that's your character. <laughs> I like that head head cannon. You know what? Yeah, that's fine. That's that's we're going to roll with that head cannon. Uh, but we're going to pack that head cannon right burk in there for a second, cuz Dylan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so Dylan, like I said, your your love of Thor kind of rests on Jane Thor. So here we have sort of like doofy wing ear hair flappy flyer Thor and he as jonah pointed out gets to speak however the fuck he wants but here he's going after the enchantress like super sexually there's that one really sexually charged embrace where she's like could you ever love me thor and he's like i i know not and she's like am i not beautiful and he's like without shirley but <laughs> well, surely but so here's my question for you. <laughs> This whole thing hinges on whether or not you give a shit about Thor and the Enchantress enchanting it on. Do you give a shit?
4: Reading the Thor part of our books for this episode, I like to bring this up every once in a while whenever it comes about in books. I like that the initial like hitting on is started by Enchantress because, I mean, like you said, this book came out in 87 and... It's nice to see that in the 80 com 80s comics they were having a female start the flirting and being all seductive and you know it's enchantress so she's just doing this so she can trick him and fool him but in media in the 80s 9 times out of 10 it was always a man that was doing something evil and seducing a woman so it's nice that in comic form of media in the 80s that this was happening and It just, I don't like that they ended off just flying off together because it kind of, I don't know, in my thoughts of it, it lessens who Enchantress kind of seems to be. I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes sense to me.
0: Well, like, here's the thing. I'm completely with you at this point in time. I'm going to disregard the 90s where they, you know, canonically, he does find her worthy of holding his Mjolnir. So they do bang In the 90s, before Ragnarok and everything. So I think it might even be before Onslaught. I can't quite remember when they got it on. But like, there is canonical reason later on for that scene to be that way. But I kind of agree with you. There is something underwhelming about the execution of that scene. But I need to pivot uh, from a scene about a woman to a scene and I need a woman's opinion. Regina, your favorite thing in the world, as far as I can remember, is uh, brutally beating people. And so, I don't know if you noticed, there's these two pages back-to-back back in Thor. One of Thor hitting Titania, and then one of Thor hitting the Absorbing Man. And all I can think to myself is, that was some equal opportunity, like, pummel-fucking? Like, like, that was just like, they're both getting hit so the same way. Thor hits women the same way he hits men. And I think that's also a victory for 1987. <laughs>
3: Because I was like, holy shit, he hit her like a dude. <laughs> but at the same time, exactly, she was coming at him like a dude. So what do you do? You treat her like a dude.
0: <laughs> you do that dude smackdown.
3: Hell yeah. And she's not, you know, she's not some weak simpering blossom. It would be different if it was, you know, if he was hitting Kitty pride, You know, if he could hit Kitty pride. But It's
4: just really awesome that his smacking her is like more than half of an... an- Of an entire page.
0: (laughs) Like, Titania's lifeless body just takes up so much post-punched room. I'm pretty sure the focus was supposed to be on her boobs, because she
3: kind of has them pimped out as she's being tossed away.
0: (laughs) It's very domino of her.
1: Uh, Two quick things I want to say about Thor real fast. First off, the Enchantress's sister named Lorelei why does one of them have the name Enchantress and the other is just Lorelei? What kind of Lion King, Mufasa, Scar thing is this? That's number one. Number two, how dare the Enchantress come for her sister turning a to stone? Because if our fans remember, in Dazzler number one, the Enchantress turned a suitor into a tree? <laughs> so... <laughs> So, for her to be like all high and mighty, like, you shouldn't be doing this, blah, 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 I'm better. I almost got my phone.
0: And if I may, those were written by the same motherfucking person. (laughs) I'm with you. I need to actually like just give a real quick shout out though. I think those last few pages of the Thor book are just beyond beautiful art-wise, just like really really excellent uh high-quality art for 1987. Something that I feel a lot of people acknowledged was toward the 80- end of the 80s. DC with their new format, their prestige format and their deluxe editions had moved toward things like Sandman and Arkham Asylum and you were seeing this rise of powerful new storytellers telling stories in very- different ways. And Marvel had trouble making that transition. There would be projects here and there like Mobius's Silver Surfer, but you just didn't see a lot of Sinkevich doing Electra Assassin. And so this is a kind of rare example of Marvel, really, for me, stepping the quality of art to a really new place. And I just needed to put that out there. I think there's something really subtle about what Ron Friends did here. And anybody who is a fan of like the MC2 line, so things like Spider Girl or J2, Wild Thing, or the Uncanny X people in A Next, all of that, that's these guys. That's Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends kind of keeping that vibe going. They would also go on to do a son of the original Thunderstrike title, which was a lot of fun, and you know there was a, a real clamor for that kind of retro storytelling. So it was cool to get to see them do a little bit more of that a little bit later on.
2: Well, I just wanted to note that Enchantress is just a, Enchantress is just a code name. Her actual name is Amora.
0: Ooh, Ooh. Kyle with the <laughs> Norse knowledge.
2: <Ooh>. What? <laughs> Agreed.
4: Lorelei, you know, has the whole red-headed stepchild syndrome or at least the red-headed stepchild look. So that's why she gets that name, okay?
0: <laughs> Thor is filled with so many like actually literal red-headed stepchildren. Um for instance, Angela, so
4: Oh, <laughs> I forgot actually... about that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, she's like actually quite literally a forgotten redheaded stepchild who goes by a different name. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. I think Spider-Man and the Secret Wars gets the award for cutest motherfucking art that I've never seen anywhere else, much to my chagrin. I think that this book is actually really pretty. Uh, you know, it's 2009, so we're not talking about, like, the greatest era of art ever. But I do find myself really pleased with Patrick sherburger and Terry Pallett's work. I do want to note that this issue was written by Paul Tobin. As I mentioned, the previous issues were written and drawn by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends on Thor. And as for Secret Wars, that's Jim Shooter and Bob Leight. But to jump back to Spider-Man and the Secret Wars number one, I not only think this art is expressive, attractive, and reflects the era that it's meant to, but I do also need to point out that, number one, I love the dynamic slapping the shit out of Enchantress on page (laughs) on page 9 but more than that on page 11 there's this panel of Cap reaching up to Hulk and that was a little little creepy
4: yeah like they were about to make out they
0: were about to fuck oh I thought yeah yeah, I was like are they gonna kiss? (laughs) it's like the best panel of my life because if anybody can handle that it's either one of them
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean steve looks so earnest
4: <laughs> as we all know cap could go all day so it's fine
3: he's like honey honey i know you're mad about the dishes i'm gonna get <laughs> to it later can you just calm down for a minute
0: <laughs> yeah and you know hulk does canonically fuck whether it's fucking red she-hulk which they like did while flying through air one of Jeff loeb's stranger stories Wait. or it was <laughs> red what? she-hulk Rocky. really okay okay yeah. There's a Red She-Hulk, and it's Rolke. <laughs> okay.
4: Isn't Red She-Hulk Betty yeah, Ross?
0: It is Betty Ross. Okay. Yeah, and her dad's Red Hulk. It's- Oh! <laughs> It's several interesting forms of stupid, oh, but Oh they fuck while flying. It's real exciting. And then there was also this time in this, like, totally forgotten JM Demateus Defenders miniseries that Hulk fucked Satana. So like I would not put it past this book to give me some weird Hulk sex.
2: <laughs> oh boy. <laughs>
0: What else is there to say, but Nico just talked about Hulk sex for five minutes. (laughs) Oh, boy.
3: You know, when I was looking um, at the art, I had to go back and check who the artist was because I got so much Bacallo vibes from this when um, he's drawing, like, these energy strings or whatever it is from Enchantress's fingers, and they're all bouncing around, and I was like, oh, that looks like skin.
0: (laughs) And, you know, I think... The art is so fun and kind of dynamic. And it's really fascinating that this miniseries is told exactly the way it is in that this issue is a one and done. It literally ends with the word end. So they're trying to retell the secret wars. In like, I guess, one-issue installments, which I'm fine with. But I'm fascinated that this sequence that was essentially eight pages of a 22-page issue was turned into its own entire issue.
3: And speaking of knocking a woman out like a dude... When Hulk knocked Enchantress out, (laughs) and he's like, you see a saddle on me? And I just heard bitch right after that, and I was like, what the hell is happening?
4: (laughs) And just the art of Hulk's hand, it looks like he barely moved his hand.
0: (laughs) He's just like, (laughs) It's another Hank Pym situation. (laughs) Hank Pym was never meant to hit the wasp, that was the... He was just raising his hand in the script. And the penciler drew it. And then the inker drew it a little bit further. And the colors drew it a little bit further. And ultimately they were like, well, he hit her! And I'm, um, you know, like... <laughs> I, although, in all seriousness, that Marvel decided that that was actually Hank Pym and not the scroll that replaced him is, you know, it's important <coughs> because it's not erasing a survivor of domestic abuse. If it was that a scroll was responsible for every bad thing Hank ever did to Janet, it would be making her the victim of, like, a superheroic plot where her husband was replaced. It, it's not the same thing as having her be a superhero survivor of domestic abuse. And so for that, I do absolutely think it's important that that not be erased
4: I agree. I do like that in the retelling, even though the Thor issue was only a few years after, and then the Spider-Man issue was like 20 years later, um, I, I do like that Enchantress kind of was a main focus, um, most of the main issues of Secret Wars. Enchantress in the 80s always got her prime, and so it's not like she was a female villain that was pushed back, but it's just nice that they kind of showcase her a lot, because when you think of the 80s and 70s and just villains of the past with Marvel, you don't really think of the female characters or female villains, and Enchantress was important. So I like that the retellings focused a lot on her and that she is a force to be reckoned with. I have to echo that.
2: Um, not having a lot of experience reading anything, uh, reading much with Enchantress, it is nice seeing just how powerful, how capable she is, and just how, uh, how much she re- she doesn't really seem to be interested in getting involved in this whole spirit war.
0: This is very beneath the Asgardians. I frequently don't know why Thor doesn't just, you know, Dad! <laughs> Dad, now. Now, Dad. Or, you know, as I like to say, Heimdall, open the bifrost, Heimdall. Which is inexplicably how he shouts it in the first film. And then, like, a minute later, he does the, You are an old man and a fool. <laughs> and
4: there's that look
0: on Loki's face, like he's about to shit himself. And he goes to say, Father. And Anthony Hopkins just goes, Ha! And, like, hisses at him. Guys, I can fucking talk about how much I love Thor all day. <laughs> okay. Oh, I just love him so much. Jim Shooter, in an attempt to make... I, I, I Like, because here's what I don't understand. Like, maybe I'm not straight male enough or something. But when I, I think about this story, I'm like, this doesn't make Saj look like a woman torn between two men. This makes these two dudes look really comfortable sharing a lady... But then, like, complaining about it, if what you were trying to do was create a dynamic by where a polyism or or a a cluster mentality is acceptable, and, you know, it's 1984, I know that's not what they're trying to do, that'd be one thing. But this sort of, like, I understand that part of it is trying to treat these women a a little bit like sluts. And, like, I hate to say it that way, I don't really have another phraseology, but to some extent, they're trying to sexualize these women into objects. And, you know, it it weakens the the strength of the men in a lot of ways, too, because if you're trying to make these women property, well, then these men can't keep their property, so you're not even doing a good job?
1: I, I don't know. I thought it was just all uncomfortable, unnecessary. There was no need for this. It was ridiculous that this was included. I also don't like that this is what led to Colossus being so upset that he can no longer even look at Kitty and it damages their relationship for I don't know how many years in comics. Kyle and I just kind of covered this a little bit uh, in a Joe Man's corner, so look out for that.
0: You know, I'm just really glad that this is the first time I've ever gotten to that Kitty and Colossus's couple name could be Colossus. <laughs> so... Ew.
4: Ew. Ew. No. <laughs> No. Are we gonna air this episode? <laughs> no.
1: But no hold on wait. I guess Speaking of women who were treated as objects, Dazzler was mentioned in this. And why was Dazzler mentioned in this? Because Claw came back. Don't ask why Claw was allowed to be resurrected, and don't ask why he acts like the Wicked Wicked Witch of the West monkey saying oop-doop-soup. I am not joking, that's an actual line of dialogue. In 1984, someone wrote that on a comic and they actually published it, and tried telling me this was the greatest crossover (laughs) and greatest event in Marvel at the time. How dare they?
0: (laughs) I had to read that with my own two eyes. (laughs) I do think that is notable. So, here's what I want to do. I want to ask you guys. 5 and 6 was definitely a major turning point in the story as well. It seems almost like 1 through 4 was nothing but setup, and now here we have 5, 6, which in a lot of ways kind of felt like non-stop snowballing action. Where does everybody stand on these heroes right now? I feel like the X-Men are clearly outsiders. Almost like Jim Shooter said, what are the X-Men known for again? Being outsiders? All right, they're outsiders. I feel like the Avengers all suck. And the villains are all working together way too well. Except Molecule Man, who's finally like, yeah, that's right. I said horse dick. Like, I mean... Molecule man is like, check me out, I'm big. I did all the roids and and I'm so big and I have silicone balls and I need you guys to Oh my god.
1: Speaking Oh, he had one of those like silicone pump dicks that are like always hard. No. No. no.
4: Speaking Speaking of Balls, I can't remember if it's issue five or six, but just like when they go and look to talk to the wrecking crew, they're all just like hanging around (laughs) playing with giant balls and rods <laughs> and the balls are blue and it was just really really kind of odd i mean i'm i'm happy that Azorbi absorbi man was there but like everybody was playing with balls and like steel pipes and
1: <laughs> it's funny that they're called the wrecking crew but i don't see them wrecking anything
0: you know i don't know how i haven't brought it up more on this show one of my favorite comics of all time is Azzarello and Riso's breathtaking magnum opus, Hundred Bullets. And, like, sometimes when you read Hundred Bullets, you can just, like, open an issue and you just, like, smell the cum. Like, it's just... (laughs) such a pungent aroma of hyper masculine testosterone driven outdicking and i'm gonna be honest i think if that's hundred bullets the wrecking crew in this are at least 36 bullets because there is so much them just kind of laying around like hey. like i can't tell if some of this is backstage at a villain's lair or backstage at a bellamy or a fraternity x photo shoot like i just i just have to wonder at what point is this no longer about the legion of supervillains and is it just about the Sean Cody cast on vacation in Cabo?
4: <laughs> I think all of the men that are in this lineup though are way too big to be in Sean Cody. But anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so you think they're more like men.com yes. guys. Yeah.
4: And that and that makes me okay. That makes me okay. really happy.
0: <laughs> Regina, how do you how do you feel these guys fall on the gay boy spectrum? <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, they are super into it, baby. They are into like some kind of mud wrestling porno.
4: <laughs> Regina, your your daytime job as like a gay porn hype lady on the side is it's not that good. <laughs>
0: So I, you know, beyond the fact that this reads like a Treasure Island media video box, I feel like this actually does have maybe a little bit, like a little bit of the driving plot. If you had said to me that this miniseries, like the actual Secret Wars, was only going to be five issues long, this could have been like five, six, could have been issue two. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Like. Agree because i feel like issues 5 and 6 at least had things i cared about the furthering galactus i really appreciated that and you know at the time we're recording this i've been reading the history of the marvel universe by mark wade which really beautifully covers so many of the things that are like in here in a, in a crazy way but like i find myself thinking a lot about galactus lately in terms of the role he plays in the marvel universe how he is responsible for the cosmicifying of the marvel universe and like finally moving the galactus story forward to me represented an understanding that this story needed to be part of a, part of a bigger hierarchy you know it's really fun that this is a whole lot of like dick swinging but you know there there's meant to be some emotional elements to it obviously we've all joked about curing dr doom's face i mean i joked about it but you know when i think of like lame x-men i mostly think of morlocks and i think to myself mask could fix doom's face right? So we're talking like Z-list celebrity bad guy couldn't even get like Stevia on Instagram level support kind of thing. And they could fix Doom's face. So I, I find myself sort of like the Doom stuff has to have an emotional payoff. Then it's not about actually fixing Doom's face. It's about his paralysis and his impotence at actually fixing his own face because one of the things that i find stunning is doom is so fucking powerful that he thinks he can go against galactus right like you know he thinks he can hang in with a guy whose fingernail is 10 times the fucking size of him right and it's molecule man who really has all the power and even then like xavier in a lot of ways is more powerful than doom at least at this point in canon so like secret wars five and six as pivotal story points i feel like are almost you know i mean you think about the sequence on comic production and lead time i feel like five and six are probably the first issues they were getting reaction from other people so i do have to wonder did anybody else feel that five and six had like binding agents that moved the story forward
3: I think there's a few things that were going on that did move the story forward, but this really should have been like issue two.
0: (laughs) That's what I'm saying.
3: So um, I do like some of the characterizations that we got. Again, Xavier being super dick and Storm like cussing him out. (laughs) Um, And then we kind of see like this interaction with Wasp and Lizard. That was really cute actually. So there are things that are happening that are pushing the story forward here, but we could have skipped all the other stuff that's happened so far, almost everything and just gone straight straight to this and it would have made way more sense.
4: Yeah, I feel like there was so much fluff in 5 and 6 that I mean, they could have at least just made this be issue 5. Like they could have taken everything that actually pushed the story forward in 5 and 6 and make it just issue 5.
2: Yeah, this story definitely needed to be compressed a lot. There's just, like Dylan said, there's just way too much fluff in it.
4: I will say that I really enjoyed seeing Titania throw a giant rock and it, like, crush Wolverine. That was fun.
0: (laughs) And, you know, like, okay, you're not... (sighs) I love problematic tropes that are still fun, like, in a vacuum, right? Like, one of my favorite things in the world growing up was Melrose Place, but it's better not to watch Melrose Place as an adult. It's better to watch the Fresh Off the Boat episode of Melrose Place and live vicariously through the Wong family. Because when you go back, the treatment of mental illness is, you know, horrifying and... There's literally, I think, yeah, I think in like the first five seasons of Melrose Place, there are a grand total of four people of color and three of them are vaguely evil. So like, it's just one of those situations where it's better not to go back to a specific era. But there is something about the like, and I just hate to say it, but the women in prison sort of like bad girls club kind of presentation of the female supervillains in this that I just like terrible ladies of wrestling love it. I feel like the women in this are, like, trailer park brawlers. And by that, I mean, like, She-Hulk style. They just put trailers on each fist and just start punching. With spikes, like, spiked collars. It's very, like, you know, TNA wrestling. There's some mud involved. I'm really into this, and I, I, I shouldn't be. But, like, there's something about the women in this book that, like, they can chew through a metal chain.
3: I gotta say, that's probably one of the things I like the most about this book. The women are so cu- colorful and strong compared to the men. And I'm kind of enjoying that.
2: <laughs> definitely. The the women definitely brought a lot to the villain team. I feel like the the male villains were very um, flat.
4: henchmen like
2: Yeah. And, you know, I
0: wonder if part of that is because Shooter had been so hands-off for so long. You know, the more we read this, like, I, and I feel bad saying it, but, like, I guess I'm softening on this. I think it's, like, worse than before. You know, like, I'm a bit more critical of it. I think, uh, what was it? oop up up" means I soup you, or whatever, really was a turning point for me as a human man. I really found myself broken by that line of dialogue. So, I, I do think that this is more flawed than a week ago. But I maybe find it more, like, more endearing than I did a week ago. There's, if you've ever read Sandman, there's this incredible issue that involved the King of America. And it's a really beautiful, touching, kind of heartbreaking issue. And there's something the gang that can't shoot straight about this book. And it's kind of the proto-crossover. Don't get me wrong. DC had actually been doing proto-crossovers for decades. DC had created this beautiful shared universe. And they were willing to play in and out of it well before Marvel was capable of doing so but these guys are doing something really clunky really different and really new so for all of the loving jabs we are taking at it you know they were trying to figure out how to tell something that we still struggle to tell but the way they told it generated so many stories to come whether it was secret wars 2 a year later which has absolutely nothing to fucking do with this story or it's secret war in 2003 which has nothing to fucking do with this Story. or its Secret Wars in 2014 which only at like its barest elements has anything to fucking do with this story. So, you know, it's hard to really say halfway through how I feel about Secret Wars because I think its historical importance is way more significant than its standing value. I also think that there's I would say four really key things everybody walks away from Secret Wars with. I think a lot of people remember the Hulk holding the world up on his back. I think people remember the introduction of julia carpenter they remember the introduction of black suit spider-man and i think a lot of people have a mental image of that you know doom triumphant final cover i think that one is pretty in terms of like the comic fandom i think that's pretty social currency at this point you know everybody knows that one so halfway through we've only really seen one of those moments you know guys we're standing at the 50 we're sitting at the 50 yard mark and this is the most defining moment in comic crossover history how do you guys feel knowing that you are halfway through the Wood. You're looking back and forward the same distance. Is there a shortcut? <laughs> <laughs> ah,
2: sorry, was that a little too mean? <laughs> That's a great answer.
3: <laughs> no, I glib but reasonable. I hope that the next several issues move at a better pace. But I do want to mention on the very last page of issue six, we see a shadow, and I think I know what that means, and I hope it means good things. <laughs>
4: I really completely disagree with why Kyle said I wish there was a shortcut or just will this end ever? <laughs> Can If the rest of the books are like these three and like one or two of the others that we read, could we just make the rest of it be in one episode? <laughs>
0: You know, I really stand by having decompressed this into way more episodes because I feel like we've had some really good discussion.
4: We have. We've made the we've made Secret Wars way more interesting than they actually were.
0: That's we've true. We've basically made it the low budget trauma porno well, version, which I've been really excited or, about. Or,
4: you know, there's the fact that we talk about how Marvel has always, has like redone it over and over again, and we don't know why. All we're doing is doing it over again, and we don't know why. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jonah, you know, I lured you into Battle World here with X-Men, and now here we are looking at this 12-part crossover that, I mean, truly, it's significantly older than you at this point. (laughs) Knowing that this created the comic crossover culture that, as a result, you're born into, how does it read 25 years later? Whoa, no. How does it read 35 years later? Not well.
1: And I don't want to be too harsh and critical on it because I don't think that it would be fair and not giving credit to what it has accomplished and what it has done for the comic industries, not just Marvel. But there's just a weird lack of finesse, passion, and thought that didn't go into this. And I feel like there were, Marvel was sitting on a gold mine and had this been done better and people were able to remember it more fondly and it read better for people who were new, I think it would have done even more wonders. I know, I obviously know, know what happens because I have finished it, but I'm not sure if I was reading this month to month across the span of a year if I would be happy with it. I would probably be really upset that if I'm reading this for the X-Men, the X-Men do not do anything for a very long time throughout this entire run. They kind of just sit and hide, and then they decide,
0: maybe we'll do something, and then they don't. Well, you know, speaking about telling this shorter, we're also taking a look at Spider-Man and the Secret Wars, which, honestly, it's just a cute fucking read. I kind of find it difficult to... I guess have a problem with it because it's so harmlessly adorable and the creative team did a lot to make me kind of, I don't want to say forgive and forget a lot of the things I don't care for about the original, but Paul Tobin and Patrick Sherberger did a great job taking Shooter and Layton's work and making it more fun. I do think that the most important thing we can talk about in Spider-Man and the Secret Wars 2, well, there's, there's three major things. Number one, Doom appears so much it might as fucking well be an issue of Doom's book. That's number one. <clears throat> number two, this whole Denver sequence just comes out of fucking nowhere. That's number two. And number three, Ben Grimm is the hottest human being ever. Ever. Period. Oh my God. Human Ben Grimm. You're so hot. I love you. Tell us more. (laughs) I just talked for like two and a half minutes. You guys talk.
3: (laughs) So before before I read a comic, I usually just kind of glance over the pages. I just kind of page through it. That's just the way that I do it. And when I first saw him, I was like, who the hell is that? (laughs) And then when I actually started reading, I was like, oh... (laughs) So it is nice to see him in his human form and he's all bulky and daddy-ish.
0: Mm. Fam, fatty <laughs> because he's the thing. So I'm going to put tea. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I agree. The whole Dinfer thing kind of came out of nowhere. And again, so much fluff that really doesn't help the story in any way.
1: I didn't really have as much of a problem with this intermission story compared to the last one, where the last one I felt didn't really put Spidey in a good light. This, at least, was more reminiscent of what I imagined Spidey is supposed to be like in comics. I guess I would be expecting him to travel around more with Johnny, since I I thought that they were more best friends than Spidey and Ben. But I did kind of like seeing uh, Doom have applicants for power... And I didn't. I don't think that Volcana and Titania would realize that they'd basically be, become, like, test tube adults. Because they'd be placed in, like, test tubes to get these powers. It was really weird. I'm just gonna say that. Weird. I don't think there was anything wrong with this. I enjoy looking at Ben Grimm as much as Nico does. But I don't really think there was anything here. I don't mind slowed down stories of trying to fill in things. But at some point, it's got to make sense, and I don't really think this needed to
0: be here. I'm beginning to think that Spider-Man and the Secret Wars as a four-part miniseries doesn't work so much to retell the Secret Wars as it does to expand on certain scenes. I'm not walking away from this going, oh, cool, I feel like I read The Secret Wars. I'm walking away from this going, really glad I'm reading this at the same time as The Secret Wars. Like, could you imagine reading this not as intermission stories in the real miniseries? Like, like this in a vacuum telling The Secret Wars. See,
2: that's that's exactly why I liked it, because I felt like this gave us more information on how uh, Titania and Volcana came to be with the villains, because they kind of just showed up in the original Secret Wars. So this this really did flesh it out, and we got to really understand that hey, Denver is actually here, instead of fi- finding that out once uh, Titania and Volcana appear and spider Wolf. Does
0: anybody else feel like, though, that you really can't read one without the other? And I know one existed without the other for, like, you know, 25 years. But, like, I think they really need to go together. One of them is definitely the other one's Guardian. <laughs>
4: I agree. I think in our reading of this and having the Spider-Man and the Secret Wars added to it, it helps me not want to say that I don't want to do this show. So (laughs) uh, they are really helpful. Like Kyle said, in, in the original just Secret Wars books, Titania and Volcana do kind of seem like they kind of come out of nowhere. Like, hey, we have female villains, too, besides Enchantress. But this helps flesh that out.
3: You know, um, it's no secret that X-Men is my first love. I I have read bits and pieces of the other parts of the Marvel Universe. But when I was reading this, it, when they're fighting the aliens, it immediately brought to mind a scene when the phalanx is starting to take over in New York. And there's a guy who is beating a piece of the phalanx with a bat. And Storm is like, you know, trying to save him. And he's an idiot and gets swallowed. And for some reason, this kind of evoked that, I guess because Ben is swinging a bat at these aliens and he's kicking their ass and it's like everybody's coming together and it just for some reason that just made that connection for me you know this is one of the reasons that i guess the x-men are always outsiders because if this had been an x-man i don't know that we would have gotten this same scene of them trying to protect humans from the aliens everybody's working together Spider-Man says. we fight together everybody's got each other's back literally we don't see that very much with the X-Men when they're facing a threat and there's human lives at stake. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting contrast. I don't think it was intentional, but that's just where my brain went when I was reading the book and looking at that specific scene.
1: Also, I want to just maybe talk about the slight logistics. I know bringing logistics into a fantasy slash sci-fi world doesn't always make sense, but Denver was gone for a whole year. What did the city of Denver do? Like, that's a pretty, like decent metropolitan city like like like, did they I, i'm just like did they run out of food did like wh-
0: what there's happened? no trucks
3: bringing the toilet paper man Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, like,
0: what if they ran out of supplies they can't go get more the beyonder provides the beyonder provides
1: someone who was crazy would be standing out in the middle of the street with a sign like you know like those doomsday people
0: I guess the Molecule Man just sort of like goes to the market and is like, oh, restock the market.
1: Like, I don't know. Just just something I was thinking about while reading the story. Like, huh, that whole city's been gone for a whole year and they're just fine. (laughs) Well, I mean, they're not fine. They're getting attacked by aliens, but that's beside the point. (laughs) When isn't Denver fighting aliens?
2: Good question.
0: You know, one of the things that I find so fascinating about this whole reading experience is the way it sort of accidentally dictated the Marvel Universe. I think they thought that this era was going to be, yeah, this big fight sequence, but no, it's really about the fashion. It's a sexy new spider woman in a sexy new spider costume. Wait, she hasn't appeared yet. Okay, well, it's Spider-Man in a sexy new spider. No, okay, well, that hasn't appeared. All right, Doom gets a sexy new... Wait, all right. So half of the Secret Wars hasn't happened yet. And in fact, one of the most significant contributions the Secret Wars makes to comics as a whole hasn't fallen in the story yet. That's going to be that the new mutants find themselves stranded at the Massachusetts Academy alongside some new kid. Uh, She hasn't been a member of the team before. Why can't I think of her name? Uh, I think she's Dylan's favorite. Kitty Pride. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> So, we're going to read a quick detour in Massachusetts before returning to battle world. After we take a look at the New Mutants, we're going to jump back to the Secret Wars, and we're going to take a look at, finally, the introduction of the Black Suit Spider-Man and the Black Suit Spider-Woman, which is actually really entertaining, because Spider-Man's suit is based on Spider-Woman's suit, like, canonically. So, it's hyper amusing that Spider-Woman number one, Jessica Drew's suit, is based on Spider-Man's suit but Spider-Man's black suit is based on Julia Carpenter's Spider-Woman number two's suit. You're all fucking welcome.
2: I have to say that I am really looking forward to the new Spider-Woman and seeing Spidey's new suit so can't wait for that. How about you, Regina?
3: I am absolutely thrilled. We are going to meet Spider-Woman. She's one of my favorite non-X-Men characters. i followed her for I don't even know how many different comic books that she's been in that I've been reading over the years so I'm very excited about that. I'm glad I got to see Spidey fighting with Fatty Grimm. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm hoping to continue to see what unfolds. Hopefully at a better p- pace probably not but let's see what's going to roll out next time and that's where i'm at for right now
2: until next time you can find me on both twitter and instagram at drantus 82 how about you regina
3: you can find me trying on my fantastic Bandix spider woman suit on instagram and twitter at the red queen of x and on facebook at the house of goblin queen
0: and, you know, Regina, not that I would ever infringe on your Spider woman but if I could just get, like, you being Spider Woman and Demanda being Spider Woman, because Demanda has the most fantastic Julia Carpenter costume as well, like, if I could just get, like, that double Spider Woman trouble, I would oh die. My God, that sounds great. <laughs> so, you know, Dylan, Dylan, Delano Cookie. Wait, what? I. The Runways of Delon. <laughs> I. Um. I lured you onto this show because I was like, we're going to get to Warpath soon. And, you know, I'm, I'm so excited that he's finally fucking here for real. Jonah, you've had just a little taste of him in a classic X-Men story. And we're finally at the true debut of the Hellions. And, you know, now there's a new team of Hellions and they're running around every title. Guys, I'm so excited to finally be fucking here. And we're like, we're like a hard dick's distance from the Sienkiewicz <laughs> New Mutants era. And I could not be more thrilled. Boys, we're on the precipice of greatness.
4: Finally, I feel like it was almost a year ago that you asked me to be a part of this because you were almost at Warpath. And I was like, oh my God, that's great timing to join. And it's been a year. <laughs> 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 but.
0: It's because every time I say we're going to do the Secret Wars in one episode, I make it
4: seven. True. And then there was that whole, you know, House of X became very popular thing last fall. Anyway, I'm having fun besides, you know, Secret Wars and Contest of Champions. But yeah, I'm having fun.
2: <laughs> it's as
1: um, the artist Stephanie Joanne Angelina Germani. Nope,
0: Germanata. Hold on, I have to redo that. I ruined the bit. Did you just say Stephanie Angelina Jolie German Nazi? <laughs> oh my god. Basically.
4: No, that's not
0: my full new drag name.
1: No, Stephanie Joanne Angelina Germanata said, I am on the edge of glory when it comes to the good books that are coming, and I know I'll, I'll get there, and it'll be all great, and that was a long-winded joke for me to just make a joke about Lady Gaga.
0: Well, guys, I'm I'm just... I'm just pissing myself with excitement. So Dylan, until your prince boy is here, where can we we find you Everybody can
4: find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group that Regina helps me moderate. That is called House of X. Or you can find me on Instagram using the name of my love, Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you?
1: Being very excited to enter the Massachusetts Academy and being one of Emma's subservient students that she calls a Hellion, which I <laughs> its not something you would co- should call someone, or a great team name. Or you could also find me only ever saying for the rest of my life Oop Doop Ops Soup on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah.
0: Do you not want to know where you can find me? Uh, do I,
1: I don't I, I don't normally do it on eighties M- mania don't you No, know? I I thought I only do it for uh, we, are, we, are, we are Krakoa.
0: Do it here. Do it now because I don't feel strong enough to do it on my own.
1: You sound like a Final Fantasy character. Yes, he does.
0: That was on, I was being adorable.
1: <laughs> Final Fantasy characters can be adorable and dramatic.
0: That's what I was saying. It was on purpose. Nico. Where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network, Mondays and Thursdays on X's for Podcasts, whether it's Thursdays on Throwback Thursdays, 80s Mutant Mania, or Mondays on Modern Mondays, We Are Krakoa, where we take a look at the X-Men from every angle. Don't forget on Tuesdays to check out HTML, where Kevo and I cover the Star Wars universe, among other franchises. You can also find me over on WeAreKrakoa.com, along with the rest of these amazing guys, talking X-Men, writing articles, and putting together read orders, and over on Instagram at NicoX, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N-N guys, until we return to the magic that is Gray Malkin to head over to the Massachusetts Academy, which by the way, I'll probably put up pictures of my Massachusetts Academy bag because it's just so fucking good, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, I just love it so much. It's so great. And until we return, for me to show off my stuff, I guess, we'll see you. Bye. 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 oop soup.